This morning we're going to be in two places, 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we're also going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So today is more of a, it's going to be more comparing stories of two men, two kings, and specifically the question that I have, which is the title, is repentance. Who sinned? So we're going to compare the life of Saul from one specific example and the life of David from a specific example and how they dealt with repentance. Because oftentimes we don't deal with sin. We move on as though we have, but we haven't actually dealt with the issue. We haven't got to the core of the issue. And so if we're like Saul, that issue arises again and again and again until, in the case of Saul, he died in a battle after he had gone to a witch to find out what God's will was for him even though he knew that was not possible. Or we can be like David who made enormous mistakes, sinned against God, knew that it was sin, yet when he was confronted with his sin, he dealt with it at the core of who he was. So I want us to see, I think examples are way more helpful in understanding this principle than it is if we just read some good verses that there are. There are plenty of verses, especially in the New Testament, about what repentance is. But oftentimes we forget what an example is. So we'll first start in with the example of Saul in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. It says, Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. So, Samuel's come. He's giving the word of the Lord. It's not Samuel's word. It's God's word. That's really important for this example. So, he says in verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. So what is God about to do? He's going to punish Amalek, the people of Amalek, the Malachites, because when they were coming out of Egypt, they were the first group of people to attack the people of Israel. They wouldn't let them go through their land, and when they tried to go around, they still attacked them. So God through Saul and the people of Israel, is going to bring justice to these people. He's allowed them, talk about God's mercy, He has allowed them to live, even from that day on to this point, in peace. Even though they have constantly, there's throughout the book of Judges, you see them allying themselves with the Philistines, the Canaanites, coming in and attacking uh, the people of Israel. However, God has given them general peace up to this point. But now God is saying it is time to punish the people of Amalek. And then he gives a command in verse 3. He's giving Saul 
a specific command. It's not a general, you know, do you go do, you know, have fun, do, do what you want. No, this is God saying, this is what you must do. So verse 3, now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. And do not spare him. I think it's interesting, he's talking about Amalek as though he's a person. It's almost like he's saying Amalek was a person, and he was. He was a descendant of Esau. And, but he, what he's saying, it's almost like we think of Agag. This is the king of Amalek. Agag was the figurehead of Amalek. So it's almost as though here God is saying to Saul, it's almost like he's pointing out Agag. Because he's the head, the figure of leadership of these people. But again, God is talking to him as though they are an individual. And he says, destroy all that he has. Now, let me ask you a question. If he says all, does that mean we can leave something out? You may, maybe there's a thimble that you really need to, you want to give to your mom for... Uh, Oh, there was a gold thimble I saw. I'm sure God won't mind if I take that home with me. I'm thinking of something small. But no, he says everything. And he says, do not spare him. But, and he explains what he means. God is not giving him a, a vague command. He's giving him a specific command. And then he explains what he means by that command, just in case Saul doesn't rem understand. So he says in the second half of verse 3, But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. There is nothing left out. Saul has been told everything. Nothing. No life. And we may say, well, nope, a lot of people don't like. Why, why would he kill the women and children? Let me ask you a question from last week. Those who... We're here or have listened. What happened to David because Saul was disobedient? Remember, David was attacked. His family and all the family of the people that were with him were taken off by the Malachites. And if that wasn't enough, think about even further down the road. What about the people in Esther's day? Remember Hagar, Haman? Remember Haman? He was an Agagite, a descendant of Agag. So Saul's disobedience did not just stop here. The consequences of his actions didn't just affect Saul. They affected David, and then they affected the people of Israel. They were trying, and they have constantly, the people of Amalek, from the day that Jacob and Esau were born, were constantly at odds. The people of God versus the people of man. And so here God is saying, if you do not take care of this, they will be a constant pain in your side. Every moment. And to the point of, Haman was going to exterminate every Jew in the, in the kingdom. 
but God had a different plan. So our disobedience doesn't just affect us. The, the consequences of our sin affect generation after generation after generation. So Saul, verse 4, it looks like he's ready to go and, and win this battle. So he summoned the people. He didn't summon just some. He didn't say, oh, this isn't going to be a big deal. He summons all the people of Israel. And what does he get? 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. So 210,000 men he's got, and he's going to fight the people of Amalek. So verse 5, Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. In verse 6, he extends compassion and mercy to people who have helped, who helped the people of Israel when they were coming out of Egypt. And that's what we see here. Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So he's showing mercy to the Kenites. He sends, somehow he gets the message to them without them telling the Amalekites. And they leave. And verse 7, we see the battle. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is in the east of Egypt. So if you think of the country of Israel now, the southernmost part of Israel, all the way to the Red Sea. That's pretty much what he was doing. It wasn't that he just stayed in the city and destroyed the city of Amalek. He destroyed towns and villages of the Amalekites. So it seems like, at this point, Saul's doing a good job, right? He's, he's not just playing games. He's taking everybody. He's, it seems like his intentions are good. But what happens? Verse 8. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. The word alive there is important because why would he... Leave him alive. God has told him specifically in verse 3 to not spare him, the Amalekites, and to kill both man and woman and child. But he felt good about it because in the second half it says, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. So, it, you know, why did he? You know, he knew God's command, yet he still disobeyed. He still said, um, I don't know, maybe I should take Agag alive. Maybe, maybe he thought, well, if I take Agag alive, I can use him as, as security so that the Malachites that I wasn't able to kill that were outside of the reach of this people, maybe I can use him as kind of you know, if you mess with us, we're going to kill him. Or maybe he wanted Agag alive so that he could parade him in front of the people of Israel like, look at our great victory. We don't know exactly why other than sin. He disobeyed God. 
So verse 9. Just in case Agag wasn't enough, he explains more. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So they're like, oh, man, look at all these beautiful lambs. Oh, look at, look at these, these oxen. Oh, man, I could really plow my field with those. Or maybe, maybe if I get these good fat cows here, the, the choice steers, mm, that would be some really good steaks. Or, or all that was good. They didn't destroy it all. They took the best and said, well, we'll destroy the other stuff and feel good about ourselves. We destroyed something. So it's okay. I think this is how we deal with sin. Oftentimes, this is the way that we deal with sin. Because this is what the issue is for Saul. He is ignoring, rebelling against God's command. Why? Because it feels good. Oh, look at, look at the sheep that we're going to have. The oxen, we're going to be able to plow our fields better. Oh, and the, and the fatlings and... And all that is good, it, it wasn't that these animals had done anything wrong, but God had a command for His people. And when we don't cut sin off, when God says, cut it off, this is, this is the whole point, really, to me, this is why this message got to me, is because how often in my life do I try to keep some pet sins because they feel good? Or something, you know, oh, I like this little lamb, it's, it's okay. But God's saying, no, you've got to destroy it. You've got to destroy it utterly. There's nothing to spare. So the contrast that we see in verse 9, and then going back to verse 3, it's total opposite, right? God is saying, destroy everything. And then here it says, what does it say? All that was good they kept. But was it really good? Is it really good if we keep it in disobedience to God? If we hold on to something because it's good, but it's actually against the will of God? I remember when I had my house on Pea Ridge... I'd spent like a year and a half just to get where I could live in it. But it had become an idol for me. It had taken a place in my heart that it was actually keeping me from doing God's will. And so I knew this for almost four months, but I kept ignoring God. I said, I, I believe God wanted me to go to Guatemala and learn Spanish and to stay for an extended period. And... But I knew I couldn't do it with the house because I had, to, I had a, an agreement on it. So it wasn't that the house was bad. It's that it had taken the place of God's command. Just like in this case, Saul had chosen these good things over the command of God. And often in our lives, like I had, it wasn't until God said, 
to me specifically through a song, do you want to find out what happens if you give everything? Do you want to know what I can do in your life and through your life if you give it all? That's the question I think we have today is it, dis- it requires complete obedience. That doesn't mean that we don't fall. I mean, when we look at David, he was far from perfect. God didn't choose him because he was perfect. God chose him because of his heart after him. David understood, and we will see that. But Saul here is focusing on the short term. He's focusing on what feels good in the moment instead of looking at who gave me the command? Who is calling me after him? So they didn't destroy everything. They only destroyed the things that they didn't want. They're like, oh, man, look at those wilting flowers. Let's burn those. Or look at, look at that, that three-legged calf. We're going to get rid of that one. Or whatever it was, it was worthless to them, so they destroyed it. But they didn't obey God as he commanded. So, shockingly, or maybe not, verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, so right after this happens, God is going to speak to his people. And he's going to do it through Samuel. So in verse 11 it says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has not, he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. This isn't the first time that Saul disobeyed God. In the first case, Samuel told him, okay, I'm going to meet you in seven days. Stay there. When I get there, we'll sacrifice. What happened? Saul saw all the people disappearing. They're like, well, he's never going to come, so we're going to get out of here. And Saul let his fear of losing the support of the people keep him from obeying God. And what happened that time, that was the first test we see of Saul. Samuel comes and says, well, Saul, first he sacrificed on his own. Then Samuel comes and said, hey, what, what are you doing? I told you to wait. Well, you didn't come in seven days. The people were leaving and... All kinds of excuses. And at that time, God said, I will take the kingdom from your descendants. So in the first test, he loses the kingdom for his descendants. In this test, he loses his kingship. I think that's really important. Because God is testing his moral character. He's showing Saul and showing us that the moral character of King Saul was not that of what God is looking for. And it's important when he says, I regret that I have made Saul king. It's not like God said, oh, I didn't see this coming. It's more like the circumstances of Saul's life are pointing God, see, this is why he shouldn't be king. This is what I knew would happen because they chose a king 
after their own delight. They chose a king that looked good, felt good, all those things, right? But God is saying here, by saying I regret, it's the idea that he's saying, this is why I shouldn't have followed your desires as people. And I, I love the response, and this should be our response. When we encounter sin or we, we encounter someone who is struggling with sin or someone who has turned back from God, I, I can't tell you how many in the last year or so I've seen so many, including Joshua Harris, but even people I know personally who have just completely turned from the Lord and are not following Him at all. I mean, no, it's like when you talk, want to talk to them about the things of the Lord, it's completely lost. But this is, look at how Samuel responds in verse 11 at the end. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. That should be us. When we see someone turn from God and embrace sin for the fullness that it is, we should be crying out to God. Have mercy on them. That's what I think Samuel was doing here. He was crying out because he loved as Christ loved us. That doesn't mean that he's ignoring the sin because we're going to see he's going to address it. But oftentimes when somebody falls, we're like, I knew that was going to happen. Or, see, that's what happens when you do this or that. And that's not the right way to respond to sin. We should be responding to the falling and the complete turning away of people that we know or we've heard of or, or people we love with love. Crying out to the Lord, have mercy on them. All night long, he cried out to the Lord. Samuel knew Saul. He had a, a relationship with Saul. And though he saw his sin, his heart still went out to him. The, the, I don't believe heaven rejoices when somebody turns from God. Do any of you? I hope not. That doesn't mean that God's justice will not be, prove true and that hell is not eternal. But it means that as Christians, we should seek the lost... And when, the law, when those who say they're Christians turn from God, we shouldn't be rejoicing in that. We should still seek for their good. Because there's still hope in this life. It's when the page is turned and they're standing before the judgment seat that their, their hope of salvation has gone. So Samuel is crying out to the Lord, but in the morning he's ready, he's sober, and he's about to deliver a message that he didn't really want to, to deliver. He, he wasn't against it, but his heart hurt for Saul. So verse 12, Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. This is interesting. So Saul has just disobeyed God. 
I think this is a, a good sign of what's about to happen. Saul's disobeyed God. He thinks he's got a victory. So what does he do? He's like, he sets up a war memorial. Look at what I've done. Who knows what it, I don't know if it was Saul on a camel, you know, kind of like we see um, all these, the, the statues you see in parks and stuff of a general or someone who had a great victory, or maybe it was Saul with a sword, a spear and, and something. Who knows what the monument looked like? We don't know. Most likely it didn't look like a person because that would be a graven image. So I don't know. Maybe he had like an obelisk, kind of like Washington Monument. I, I don't know. But anyways, so he sets up a monument. Oh, look at how great this victory was. We, we did everything God wanted. And then, so he sets it up in Carmel, and then he's going to Gilgal. What, who's in Gilgal? Anyone remember? Samuel. He's going to Samuel to talk about how great he followed God's command. His sin has so deceived him that he is going to the representative of God with celebration. So verse 13, Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the... Sorry, I have carried out the command of the Lord. How many of you believe that after reading? <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't even obey. He saved the king. He saved all the choice animals. He didn't obey the Lord. But that's the thing. Sin will deceive us. If we do not deal with sin in our lives... It will deceive us into believing that we are obeying the command of God. And this is why, whether it's individually or as a church, we have to confront sin. This is why we have to cut it off. That's why Jesus said, if your hand is making you sin, cut it off. He wasn't being literal. But he was showing, if it is causing you to sin, take every precaution so that you do not sin. If you have an issue with lust, then look at the ground when you walk around. If you have an issue with stealing, maybe you should uh, handcuff yourself when you go to the store. <laughs> That's a figure of speech, but do whatever it takes to not sin. But here he has become so deceived that he actually thinks he's fulfilled the command of the Lord. And then Samuel says, but Samuel said, you, you say that, but, but what, what, is, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? Is that my imagination? Oh, or, or the lowing of the oxen, which I hear. It's a rhetorical question. He's not asking like, oh, those are probably your own sheep and your own oxen. No, he is addressing, he's like, the first sign to me that you disobeyed is the fact that I'm hearing sheep and oxen. Those are not yours. And what does Paul, Saul say? What's the first thing that he says? Do you see it there? They. Who sinned? He's blaming it on the people. That's the problem. 
This is the difference. This is the main difference between him and David. David says, I, but Saul says, they. So who sinned? They sinned. They have brought them from the Malachites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest have been utterly destroyed. Isn't that interesting? He, he puts all the blame on them like he had nothing to do with it. Right? But in verse 9 it says, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, and the lambs. So Saul is shifting blame. It's often, it, excuses are the same way. Many times somebody gives you excuses like, Oh, I, I had to do this. Or somebody did that to me. And it, it's always putting blame outside of yourself. That's not repentance. That's just trying to get the blame away from you so that you feel like you're okay. So that's what Saul, that's why Saul feels like he can say, I carried out the command of the Lord, because he is in his mind saying, they decided this. I had nothing, no control over this. He had ignored his role as leader because he wanted to please the people. This has been Saul from day one. Remember, he was hiding because he was afraid of the people in the, in the luggage. And here in the other one, he was afraid the people would leave him. That's why he sacrificed. And then here, probably the same idea. He's like, if I don't let them have the sheep and the oxen and the, the fatlings, they're going to not want to follow me anymore. So he chose pleasing people over leading people. That doesn't mean that we can't please and lead at the same time. But if we're God's leadership, if we are leading by God's command, then we will please God first. And if all the cards fall away and no one wants to be around us, I'm not saying we should seek to do that. But if no one wants to follow God because of us pleasing God, that's between the Lord and them, not us. It's interesting, Saul, Samuel in verse 14, he doesn't say what he says in verse 16. He doesn't, he, he wants to find out, he's addressing Saul, finding out what Saul's going to say, then he tells him what the Lord told him, verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait. And let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. I have a feeling at that moment, Saul's heart smote him. I would be shocked if he wasn't like, oh no, he's been talking to God. He's been talking to the Lord. He knows the truth. And I have a feeling when Saul said to him, speak, it was more like, speak. It was probably a week Way just like us when we when we're confronted with sin, does our heart not smite us? Just like that's the difference here. It's very possible, and I do believe that in both cases, the conscience of Saul and in da of David both 
struck them. The difference is how they responded. And this response comes from the Holy Spirit. We cannot repent without the work of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? Well, that's why Saul was hiding. He was like, I'm nobody. And God exalted him. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. 18. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. In verse 17, we see kind of the contrast. What, what is Saul making himself out to be? A great general, a great man, a great king. He's built a monument to himself to, to extol this, this victory. So now that Saul thinks he's something, that he's some big man, God is going to take the kingdom from him because God sent him on a mission. He sent him to exterminate the Malachites, to destroy the sinners. But Saul thought he was something big. He rebelled against God because he thought he had something more important. Verse 19, why then, did, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? So even though he said, you know, I obeyed, even though he's been confronted what is Saul's response again? Verse 20. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, again, he has not accepted guilt for himself. He is shifting the blame to someone else. But the people took some of the spoil, more like all that was any good to keep. Sheep, the oxen, the choices of things devoted to destruction. So they have took the good things that were devoted to destruction. That doesn't sound good, does it? Does it? To sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. That's why we're coming here with the sheep and oxen. We're going to have a big sacrifice. We're going, to, we're going to give the Lord what he wants, but we're going to do it as a sacrifice instead of obeying what he said to do. And this is the verse we've all, I don't know of anyone here that hasn't heard this verse. Verse 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. 
Saul was only going to offer a sacrifice, I would bet they weren't going to sacrifice them all. They were only bringing them there to, to sacrifice some so that they could feel good about disobeying God. And how often do we do the same thing? We, we bring some of our sins to God, but we, as a sacrifice, well, I'm surrendering. Uh, you know how people do like fast, but from different things like your phone or Facebook or Instagram or whatever your, uh, some kind of a specific food. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to eat chocolate this month or uh, sugar. I've done that. But it wasn't a sacrifice to the Lord, just so you know. I was not. <laughs> it was more like I realized it controlled me instead of me controlling it. But in all these cases, how often do we bring something to the Lord, but we're harboring sin? We're like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you these barrels over here, but I have a whole ship over here in the harbor that's just, it's, it's fine, it's okay, it's, it's got some sins in it, but it's not a big deal. We have to get to the core of what sin is. It's rebellion against God. And if we do not fight sin, it will be killing us, as John Owen said. If we, if we are not killing sin, it will be killing us. And that's what ha- is happening to Saul. He is trying to appease God like the, the kings around him. Remember, the, the kings around them, they would offer sacrifices so the gods would be appeased. And that's what Saul sees the people, the God of Israel, as a God that can be appeased by sacrifices. And often in the church today, we are the same way. We have forgotten that Christ made a way to, to God. And that we're trying to offer something that is not worthy to God as though it's worthy. Something that should have been destroyed, we're trying to offer to God like it's something valuable. Instead of coming to Him and finding in Him salvation, freedom from sin, and power over sin. It's time we stop offering sacrifices and start obeying the voice of the Lord. What does it say in verse 23? He, he defines it. He says, for rebellion is a sin of divination. What's he saying? He's saying rebellion is a sin where you're trying to do what you want and then try to forecast it to the future like it's going to be okay. But that doesn't work. It says, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Why? When we are rebelling and insubordinate to God, what are we saying? Let me ask you, if you were in the military, I don't know of anybody here that was in the military, but if you're in the military and you are insubordinate, what would they accuse you of? insubordination, but you're trying to make yourself more powerful than your commanding officer. And that's what he's doing. By disobeying God, when we sin, disobeying God is saying, you know what? What I think is more important than what God thinks. What I as a creature created by God thinks is more important than what 
God thinks. And the second half says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he, also, he has also rejected you from being king. So, in this test, God shows him that his moral character is a rejection of God and his word. And that in that rejection, God is rejecting him as king. Not just his descendants, but him personally. And finally, it's after, it's after he hears this that he actually admits that he sinned. Look in verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. So he admits his sin, but he still shifts the blame to the people. Isn't that interesting? He says, I did this, I did that. But because he's, he's grounding his sin still in the people. He's saying the people, the fear of the people made me listen to their voice and not to God's. So he's still not accepting blame. He's not accepting the shame and the sin that he has committed against God. And then verse 25 he, he's trying to get that pardon. He says, now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And what does Samuel say? I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. And so Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. As the glory of Israel not liar change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. There are two things here that continue to show that Saul hasn't repented. Why? Why does he want Samuel to go back with him? So that the people will think he's okay. Isn't that what it is? He's saying, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. That's one. And two, at the end he says, that I may worship the Lord your God. He doesn't say, my God, our God. He says, your God. Isn't that interesting? He is not calling out to God because it's for his soul's sake. He's calling out to God so that the people will love him. His sin has never been dealt with. It looks like it. He said some words that sound pretty good, but his life is still the same. He's continually seeking the pleasure and the joy of the people. He wants to be accepted. It's interesting, after this event, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. So from 
that time forward, Saul did not have that relationship with Samuel. So, this is a bad example. He was not repentant. But let's look at David. I mean, David, he made specific sins. One, so we're going we're gonna, to... The Second Samuel chapter 12 does not give us ex- exact details of what David did, but we know that David slept with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, after he was roaming around on the roof and saw her bathing. So he's committed adultery, and he hasn't just committed adultery, he committed adultery with the wife of one of his good friends. Uriah had been with David for many years. He was one of God, of David's mighty men. So Uriah wasn't just like some random soldier that David didn't know. He had intimate relationship with David. They were good, close friends. And yet, David ignored it. Committed adultery, then he finds out, oh, she's pregnant. Uh-oh, what am I going to do now? So Uriah comes. And he can't convince Uriah to go into his wife, so he just, he's like, well, what do I do now? So what does he do? He writes a letter to his general, hey, make sure that Uriah's put in the front lines so that he dies. So what has he just done? He sent a letter for his own murder through Uriah. So he's committed adultery. He's now guilty of murder. And what happens? 2 Samuel chapter 12. Again, the Lord sent, or I will say, the Lord sent someone to confront David, just as he did with Saul. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. This is David's heart. He sees the justice of God. He desires the justice of God so much so that in the hearing of this story that was a story completely, but it pointed to something, he, his desire for justice just was overwhelming. And then we hear the words of Nathan to David, verse 7, You are the man. You are the man. And I have a feeling at that moment, David probably 
start, I would guess, from the way David was, he probably burst into tears, I would guess, because he saw his sin. How many of us, when we saw our sin for what it was, that day that God turned our lives around, we couldn't help but cry before the Lord, like, who am I? I'm the man. I'm the man who crucified Christ. My sin was put on Him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Nathan says, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. God is saying, David, you are in the position that you are because I chose you. Remember when he was chosen by Samuel? I talked about this a little last week. He didn't have anything that made Samuel think, that guy has got to be the king. No, God told him, he is my choice. So, David was the choice of God completely. Everything that David has is by God's provision, God's care, God's compassion and love. And so he's saying, why, why did you go and sin? Why did you feel like you had to have something that I could have given you? That's what sin is. Sin is not willing to accept God's provision in God's time. Isn't that true? No matter what the sin we're dealing with, it's us saying, you know what? Whether it's lust, or, you know, I need this right now. Or whether it's stealing, oh, I can't wait for that. We're saying, I want what I want now. I don't want to wait on God and find out if He's going to give it to me. I'm going to take it for myself. That's what sin is. It's, it's taking what is not ours, thinking that we have better ideas about our lives. That God, you know, the, I think the lie the devil gives us the most is, God would want you to have this right now. You know, that kind of goes back to the garden. God, 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 is, God, God is, isn't mean. He wants you to have this right now. Just go ahead and take it. Go ahead and enjoy it. Go ahead and... No, that's a lie from Satan. Doing things God's way in His time will always bring peace and joy. What happens here? David, there's no way. David knew what he had done. Do you think he was at peace? Do you think he had joy? No. He might have been trying to play it off like, oh yeah, everything's great. Look, yeah, I'm having a good time. But in his heart, peace was nowhere to be found. Then, then here comes the, the question, verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? By doing evil in His sight. 
You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So, God is bringing judgment on him. This is all before he has a chance to respond. The consequences of David's sin stuck with him. And we'll see that again here in verse 11. He says, Behold, I will raise up evil against you for your own household, from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. He will lie with them with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Guess what? That happened. David was doing everything in secret, but God exposed his sin in the, in the eyes of all the people. If we think our sin will not find its way out, we are sorely deceived. There was a man who committed suicide this weekend who was, uh, he was a powerful man, he had a lot of money, and he was trafficking young ladies. And he committed suicide this weekend because he couldn't deal with his sin coming out. He couldn't deal with it. And even in the sense of that, people are like, well, he's never going to see justice. Yes. He's going to see justice in a way that no one on this earth has ever seen justice in the sense of our laws can give a sense of justice but it's the justice of God that is way worse than what we experience on earth he may have skipped the consequences on this side but in eternity He's going to experience justice like he has never seen before. But here, David, God is telling him the consequences of his sin. What is going to happen because of his sin? And how does David respond? This This is what we have to see, the difference between David and Saul. What does Nathan, David say? Then David said to Nathan, Bathsheba has sinned against the Lord. Is that what he said? It was Bathsheba's fault. She shouldn't have been walking around. She shouldn't have been taking a, shower, a bath on the, t- the roof. That was her fault. It wasn't mine. No, that's not what he said. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. He sees The truth of where sin starts. It's against God. It's not against some man. It's not against anything but God. All that we do in sinning is against God. Does it affect other people? Absolutely. When we lie to someone, they feel what it's like to be sinned against. But in reality, we're sinning against God. It's interesting. David doesn't have to say anything else. What does it say? And Nathan said to David, 
The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. By confronting his sin, by saying, I have sinned against the Lord, David has circumnavigated all the issues. He's dealt with his sin right there. He hasn't played games with it like Saul was. And though David lost the child, and although he experienced the consequences of his actions, the one consequence that really mattered, he made it past. And I want us to see why. I want us to see the cry of David in Psalm 51. We've all heard this psalm, but I feel like really this is where it kind of started for me, this this message, just thinking about this. This is his prayer of pardon, and I I believe it's concerning this specific situation. And a lot of people believe that. So, verse 1, be gracious to me, God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. David, when he goes to God, he is falling upon the mercy of God. He is not saying, God, I'm something, forgive me. He is saying, God, if you are not loving kind, if you are not showing mercy to me, If you do not have compassion on me, I am in trouble. I think that's why in Romans chapter 12, by the mercies of God, present yourselves to God. It's not by our own strength, as I I talked about a few weeks ago. How is it possible that God could blot out his transgression? We know, and it's possible that David knew, it's in Christ. God passed over the sins of man before Christ. And when Christ came, the sin that David had with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah was passed upon Christ on the cross. Christ bore the sin of David just as he bore ours. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David, again, he is not saying, hey, God, I'm going to wash myself. I'm going to cleanse myself. No, he realizes it's only in God that we can have cleansing from our sin. It's only in God that we can be set free from sin. If God doesn't cleanse us, we're not clean. It is only in the blood of Christ That we can be washed clean. Verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I think David is talking about what he he has felt. I guarantee you from the day that he looked with lust to the day that Nathan confronted his sin, it was constantly in his mind. I have done this evil thing. Why? David knew. 
the Word of God. David knew the command of God. And so it wasn't as though David was like just happy-go-lucky. He was constantly confronted with his sin. Why do I do this? Why am I living this way? I know it's wrong. In verse 4, this is so important for us. I believe if we, if we condense Psalm 51 down into some, some specific phrases, this would be one that's really important. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David realizes his sin was not against some Uriah specifically, Bathsheba, or whatever. His sin was against God and God alone. In disobedience to God, he was rebelling against God. In disobeying what God had said. And he says this because verse, the second half of verse 4, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David knew that God was always just. That God was perfectly righteous. Without blame when he judges. He realizes that in his sin against God, the only hope is in Christ. Of course, he doesn't see Christ as we do, but he saw that that Savior in the future who would bring salvation. I mean, he prophesied about it many times in the book of Psalms. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Verse 5 is not popular today. I mean, how many people do we know who think that people are generally good? You know? I have children, and I have to say, as much as I love my children, I know that they are not generally good. Because I do not have to tell them to sin, or to take something, or disobey. It's from nature. Sin is in our nature. From the day that Adam sinned against God, we have been sinning every single person. There is no one who is innocent before God. We were all sinners from birth. Verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. David realizes that if the inner, if we don't get to the core of what sin is doing, if we don't get to the truth of what sin is, then it doesn't matter how we look on the outside. Saul was the opposite. He was so focused on what outside appearances looked like that he didn't deal with the problem of sin in his heart, that he wanted to please man before he wanted to please God. But David understood if my heart and soul is not changed 
It will not matter how I look to the world around me. If you don't give me wisdom in my hidden part, it won't matter what you have shown me. So, he says, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. If this isn't a picture of Christ and His work in us, I don't know what is. The only way we're going to get white as snow is through the blood of Christ. If our repentance doesn't include turning to Christ, it doesn't matter if we repent. Repentance must include a confession that Christ is Lord. Because if Christ is not Lord of our lives, we can say, I'm sorry, but guess what? We're going to turn back to our sin. Why? Because we can't overcome sin without Christ and His work. Then verse 8, we see David... It's like he's saying, you know, all these sins have been before me, but now, Lord, verse 8, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. He's saying, I haven't had joy and gladness since the day I started in this sin. I have been completely dead in my heart. The joy that I once knew was gone. I was not glad for anything. But Lord, you can restore joy to me. You can make the broken bones rejoice. Verse 9, this this expression kind of gets lost on us because we don't think of it this way. But he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. God's face was the most... For the ancient times of Israel, this is the most intimate. If you had seen the face of God, you had the most intimate relationship with Him. And when, our, when we think of Him seeing our sins, His face seeing our sins, what does that bring? Images of wrath, God's justice upon us. If His face is constantly looking just think of it as all your sins written down on a scroll, on a, on a piece of paper. Okay, all my sins are right here. Uh, I don't think that's enough. I probably need a few more books this size. But all my sins are written here. If his face is towards my sins, how is he going to forget it? How is he going to blot it out? He has to move it away and, and wipe it clean. If Christ didn't come, if Christ had not died for us, where would we be? God's face would still be turned on our sins. And there would be no way that God in His justice could look on our sin and forgive us. But because Christ came and He took our sins upon Himself and died in our place... 
And he poured out his blood to blot out our iniquities and make us whiter than snow. God looks on us and sees Christ. He does not see our sin anymore. We can live holy lives. Not perfect lives. Not lives that don't include falling. But lives that are constantly directed back to him. Lives that are able to overcome sin. Verse 10, we see, it's like the new birth here. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I get recollections of Ezekiel 36. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to obey all of my commandments. David understood if it doesn't start in the heart, if it doesn't start in our all that is, makes us who we are at the innermost part of our being, then it doesn't matter. We have to have a clean heart. We have to have His Spirit within us to direct us and guide us. In verse 11, I think... Verse 11 is a response to what he saw happen with Saul. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Instead, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with the willing spirit. So he says, don't don't cast me from your presence. I need your presence every day. You are everything to me. That was not the way Saul was. And he said, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He saw in Saul what happened when the Spirit was taken away. Remember, David was constantly playing the harp. And through the Spirit of God in, in David, Saul's spirit was calmed. But David saw what happens when a man has the Spirit of God taken away from him. That what happens when sin is let go to control someone? Do we need to see that happen in our lives? Do we need to see the joy of our salvation restored? Do we need to remember what God has done for us? Have we lost the ability and the willingness to follow after God? I think it's interesting. He, he gets to this point, and then this should be our response. If God has done all these things, what should happen? Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressor their, your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. When we are repenting of sin and living for God, this should be the result. If we have seen God deliver us from sin in repentance, 13 should be happening. And I think, if I may be so bold, I believe this is a problem that has probably been a big reason why the church is, our church specifically today is the way it is. And I'm not, I'm not going to point fingers at anyone but myself. But how faithful have I been to teach others about God? To share the gospel 
with everyone I encounter. I know myself, I would prefer to go share the gospel in Louisville because I'm never going to see those people again. Right? Or Lexington, wherever. But if I'm going to see them again, here, guess what? They're going to be watching my life. They may think I'm crazy. And that's the thing. When we see the power of repentance, the power of Christ in transforming our lives, our response should be that of David. I want to teach others about you. I want to see the lost converted. I want to see your power. It's almost a repeat in verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. The Lord, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor you do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls would be offered on your altar. Isn't that such a, a, a difference between David and Saul? Saul's trying to bring sacrifices and offerings as though those will appease God. And David's saying, no, those are not what you want. You want a broken heart, a broken spirit that wants to please you. You want someone who is broken when they're confronted with sin, broken with their when they're confronted with disobedience, and desiring to follow you. If we don't get repentance right and deal with sin in our lives, this church will die. It's individually, corporately. If there is something in our lives that we are holding back, we're not repenting of the way that we've talked about someone or the way that we treat people or whatever it may be. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just saying those things. It's not a specific issue that I'm thinking about. But whatever it may be, the sin that we're dealing with, if we do not confront sin, then we will not see growth physically, spiritually, in any way if we are unwilling a church is made. The purpose of the church is to make disciples. It's clear. That's the last thing that Jesus commands his disciples to do before he ascends to heaven. It's to make disciples. And maybe that's a sin that we need to deal with. Maybe there's a sin as a church that we need to deal with. And I'm not saying that we haven't, some of us, been faithful. But if we have, we need to encourage others to be faithful. We need to be Together with this, I believe that is the purpose of every church. Every church should be making disciples. Does that mean that we're making hand over fist disciples? No. It may be one person, maybe two, five, whatever number. But we're faithfully teaching them the ways of God. And seeing people who are truly converted, not just said a prayer and then living how they want. 
But if we don't teach and don't understand repentance like David did, we're going to miss it. We're really going to miss it. And I want to finish today by reading Psalm 139. Because one thing that David realizes that God knew him better than anyone else. And that's what Psalm 139 is all about. God knows us. We can't hide our sin from Him. We can't act like we don't know. That He doesn't know. He knows everything about us. So if there's sin in our lives, let's deal with it. So that God can use us individually as a church to make His kingdom known. I would love to see people from the neighborhoods around this church come to Christ because... We are, as a church, are making an effort to reach the lost, young, old, whatever age we are. That as a church, we are seeing what God has done for us, and we can't help but tell those around us about it because of His forgiveness, because we know who He is. Oh, Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me. And your right hand will lay hold of me. What a promise here. No matter where we are, he's with us. Whether that feels good or not. (laughs) Sometimes that doesn't feel good because we're in the deepest, darkest pit because of sin. Or maybe it's because God has sent us to whatever place and we feel like we're all alone. But he's saying, I'm with you. I'm guiding you. If If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give you thanks. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My fame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. When as yet there was not one of them. Isn't that incredible? All that is going to happen, God has already written. All those days. 